Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. We're back! And we're suing the cops. (laughs) Uh, Tuck and I just had a conversation in between episodes about the fact that both of us and everyone we know is suing the Portland police in some way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's it's Mm -hmm. fun. Um, Yeah, and how it's just so much mm -hmm. a part of life that I just forget about it. And then every once in a while I remember that um, I am suing the city of Portland. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Good times. I don't love lawsuits but they <laughs> happen um yeah so tuck how are you has has life changed radically for you in the last five minutes yeah i got a kombucha now oh so wow i everything's looking up what that, that is a huge improvement what flavor <laughs> mm-hmm. um grapefruit Ooh, mm-hmm. nice it's exciting i just want to know uh, all I, the information <laughs> You know, I haven't opened it yet, but I'll tell you. Yeah, uh, I'm, like some sure, I'm sure it's great. Robert, what are you <laughs> drinking? I have a Diet Orange Crush. Um, and oh. actually, pretty recently, I waterboarded a friend of mine with Diet Orange Crush as an experiment. And it turns out it's terrible. I am shocked painful. that if you combine, yeah, if you combine Diet Orange Crush and waterboarding, it's bad. Like, mm-hmm. I know. Hmm. Well, I can update this kombucha is good. Fantastic. What are you drinking, Sophie? It's a bramble berry hibiscus tea. Oh wow. Cold. Everyone's fancy today. That's a very well, I don't know if Orange Crush is very fancy. Yeah. Okay. There's several words involved in describing it. It's not like water, you know? It's like diet, (laughs) orange crush, bramble berry, iced tea. A lot of consonants. Now that you guys are just hooked on this conversation <laughs> this is the whole podcast yeah. is, i've decided is, that it's going to be too bleak to keep going with this conversation yeah. and so i'm going to talk about beverages for an hour yeah. welcome to behind the beverages the podcast <laughs> where we talk about things that you drink yeah. uh no this is right. this is a podcast about bad people um the worst people and today we're talking again about the Portland Police Association and kind of just about the Portland police, uh, which is shockingly one of the most influential police departments and unions in the entire country. Maybe the most you could make a case, although the NYPD is the NYPD. Um, so after 
<laughs> After single-handedly doing more damage to Portland's economy than the decades of protests that would follow, the Portland Police Association was in a pretty good position as 1970 dawned. Their first big test of the modern era came in May of that year, when students and faculty at Portland State University went on strike to protest the Kent State shootings and the Vietnam War. After four days, the protesters struck an agreement with the city to end the strike. So that's good, right? Protesters go on strike in solidarity over a shooting in another state. The city's like, we get what you're doing. Let's negotiate a way to bring this to an end. And they negotiate a way to bring this to an end. Sounds ideal and very democratic. But mm-hmm. before the protesters could start to disassemble the structures they'd set up for the occupation, the Portland Police Riot Control Team showed up to take down a hospital tent. Protesters felt betrayed by this since they had already worked out a plan to end the strike with the city. They walled off the tent with their bodies. This pissed off the riot cops, who were more or less the same as the riot cops we have today. The riot squad tear-gassed the students and professors and then charged into the gas cloud to beat them with batons. Yep. <sighs> Sounds <It's>, right. <laughs> Sounds, Sounds right. like what they do. Yeah. One officer noted that the violence was not pretty, but the streets were cleared, which again would have happened if the cops hadn't shown up. Right. <laughs> yeah. An activist who was present, uh, Lester Lamb, recalled his friend's head being split open like a pumpkin by a riot cop's baton. 31 people went to the hospital for injuries sustained from police violence. Um, The whole mess set off an avalanche of condemnation from local media, which had either ignored or been critical of the protests before the cops beat everybody up. After what became called the Park Block Riots, the PPB faced some of the first mass criticism for violence to protesters in its history. This was largely due to the fact that its victims had been mostly white. Um, Go figure. The bad PR was enough that the Portland Police Bureau made a public statement where they agreed to never use force against nonviolent protesters again. Oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah, they made a promise. (laughs) Well, it's so nice how that paved the way for Mm -hmm. them just being so chill and cool today. Yeah, that's why, for example, when people sat in an intersection last May, (laughs) they did not beat them in the face with sticks. Mm -mm, No, (laughs) that would go against their promise. (laughs) That would go against their promise. (laughs) (laughs) The controversy over the Park Block riots faded soon enough, and the Portland Police Association succeeded in winning another contract in 1972, and yet more money. They withdrew from the International Police Union they'd helped to start in March of that year, after deciding that it lacked focus and direction. The Portland Police Association was now an independent union, uh, because they also pulled out of AFSCME, with no ties to any national organization. It remains that way to this day. Loyal to no one but itself. Pretty good. Yeah, they don't want any influences that might give them like a conscience or something. No, you know, no, they not really gotta e- stay pure to their ideology. <laughs> not even influences that would lead them to support other cops who weren't Portland cops. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. So the PPA had ensured that its officers were highly paid and basically unaccountable. Now that the precedent had been set that Portland cops could go on strike if they were angry and crater the local economy, there was very little that the city government could hold over them. As you might expect, this emboldened the worst officers in the department to carry out acts of horrifying racial violence. On March 14, 1975, Portland police officer Kenneth Sanford shot 17-year-old Ricky Johnson in the back, killing him. Johnson was the fourth person of color shot and killed by Portland police in five months, and his death ignited a citywide outrage. The details of the killing were just sketchy enough that even the city's white majority couldn't all sit by and pretend it hadn't happened. In essence, two kids with an empty, broken gun had been ordering Chinese food and then robbing cab drivers who dropped it off. One of those drivers called the cops and they set up a sting operation. Now, despite the fact that everything in the PPB's bylaws said that this kind of operation should only be conducted by multiple officers— They sent one guy in. They dressed him up as a cab driver, and he had a gun hidden in an empty to-go box of food. Uh, When he showed up at the house, the kids pulled a gun on him, so he pulled his own gun. What happened next is debated. The cop claimed that Ricky knelt down and prepared to fire, so he shot the boy dead. Ricky's friend claimed that both boys ran like hell and dropped the gun immediately, and then the officer shot Ricky in the back. The physical evidence supported the second version of events. Investigators found the broken gun 10 feet away from Ricky's body and Ricky had been shot in the back of the head, which probably wouldn't have happened if he'd been facing the officer. Just physics and such. Many white Portlanders were able to see that, while armed robbery is, you know, not good, shooting a fleeing robber in the back of the head is worse. The rage was augmented by the fact that the PPB had murdered, again, three other black men over the course of the last several months. All of the cases had been sketchy in some way. 
Kenneth Allen, age 27, was murdered in a prostitution sting. His death was ruled a justifiable homicide because he had a gun. But the gun was never found and introduced into evidence. The cops just said that he had one. And also he was shot multiple times in the back. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's just fucking me up a little bit how, I guess this isn't PPA because it's right across the river, or PPB, yeah. but like such a similar thing is happening like right now across the river in Vancouver. And it's like, yeah. cool, just just how it goes forever. Just how it goes forever. This is the song that never ends. Mm. Charles Minifree was killed after a 20-mile car chase, which started when Canby, Oregon cops pulled him over without probable cause. Eyewitnesses report that Minifee had his hands in the air and was standing outside his car when he was shot to death. None of the witnesses to his death or the witnesses to any of the other deaths of black men killed by Portland police during this period were called to testify in court. And again, all of these men were black men who lived in Albina. Uh, none of their deaths provoked any outcry until Officer Sanford shot Ricky Johnson in the back of the head. Everyone living in the year of the George Floyd uprising knows how this works. It's kind of impossible to predict when the violent death of a person of color at the hands of cops will provoke outrage in enough white people that the police actually have to address it. Um, but it did here. Um, and I should note here that in 1972, there were also plenty of back the blue types who defended the PPB from all of its murdering. I'm going to quote from Catherine Nelson again here. One citizen even sent Officer Sanford, who shot the 17-year-old, a $20 check for his vacation fund and offered to provide him with a babysitter. The donor, Esther Nichols, stated that the community cannot say or accept that black is bad, so it has to be the police that are wrong. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'll, I'll read that again. Esther Nichols, who gave money to the cop that killed that guy, stated that the community cannot say or accept that black is bad, so it has to be the police that are wrong. Cool, Esther. Fuck, you seem chill. <laughs> you seem rad, Esther. Fuck yeah. off, Esther. <laughs> Thanks for being really openly racist as opposed to just claiming you support cops. Uh, right. That's at least honest. She's like the progenitor of all the cop GoFundMes now, but it's yeah. just one person named Esther. Being yeah. Like, you seem cool. Yeah. Uh, Johnson's death revealed that a large portion of Portland's white residents held racist views and respected the decision of the police to use extreme violence against black citizens. Uh, meanwhile, Johnson's death inspired black Portlanders to create the Black Justice Committee. Uh, the BJC teamed up with several existing advocacy organizations to push the city to order an inquest into Johnson's death. A public inquest is essentially a trial that occurs after a suspicious death, and it was hoped that this would make it clear that criminal behavior had been you know, evident on behalf of the officer involved. Uh, the Portland Black Student Union was another uh, group that pushed for the same cause. Now, an awful lot of Portlanders were willing to support a public inquest. This was a very popular cause. It was, after all, a pretty basic thing to do and not exactly a revolutionary demand. Like, we should investigate the suspicious killing is you can get most people on board that thing. There were, however, some bootlickers who thought this went too far. Opponents of the inquest wrote into local papers complaining that Johnson's death was being turned into a race issue. Watford Reed of Portland wrote a letter to the police chief in which he complained that a public inquest would prove black people People are privileged in Portland. <clears throat> Pardon? <laughs> we investigate when they're murdered. For... They're privileged. <laughs> oh, God. Some fucking jellical cat shit where everyone's just like, the, actually, the most privileged thing would just be to descend to the heavens right now. Ugh. <laughs> It would be fun if his argument was like, well, no, th this planet is terrible and being yeah, able exactly. to ascend out of life is a privilege. <laughs> yeah. uh. Mayor Neil Goldschmidt, who was basically the same as every other mayor Portland has ever had, knew that outrage over the Johnson shooting was too popular for him to come out against uh, the inquest, but he was also terrified of the PPA, who were clearly more powerful than the city government. So Goldschmidt tried to thread the needle by supporting the inquest in order to appease the liberals and stating publicly that he expected Officer Sanford to be totally vindicated. Uh, he actually announced that he thought the inquest would be a good opportunity for black Portlanders to learn why it was totally okay to shoot a 17-year-old in the back of the head. <laughs> like, great mayor. Solid mayoring. He does sound a bit like our current mayor. Yeah, I was going to say, what I love about Portland yeah. is all the good mayors. Yeah, <laughs> all the great mayors that we have here. So the PPA's president at this point was a total dickbag named Stan Peters, uh, which is a dickbag name. Like, a, it's a name <laughs> of a jerk. Like, 
so he was, Peters was enraged by even the mild support the mayor gave to the idea of an inquest. Um, he was just like, this is like the fact that you would even question one of my cops shooting somebody is offensive to me. Uh, the police chief was a little bit more reasonable uh, and decided the benefits of having an inquest outweighed the risks. In the end, the inquest happened and it revealed some pretty damning stuff about the conduct of Portland police officers. From Catherine Nelson. Witnesses who testified included Melva Thrower, a neighbor on North Gandonbean. She testified that the officers used profanity and handled Zachary roughly upon his arrest. That was the other kid who was with the kid who got shot to death. She stated that they threw Zachary on top of the police car before tossing him into the back seat. When Zachary asked about Johnson, they said, that bitch is dead, and asked, where does that motherfucker live? Instead of focusing on the treatment of Zachary, Moore questioned the officers about Thrower's testimony and asked if they used profanity. The officers admitted that profanity was used, but they couldn't remember what profanities. Another officer claimed that he heard loud language, but could not determine that they were profanities. After the assistant district attorney questioned Stanford, the six-person jury voted as to whether Sanford should be held accountable. The vote returned five to one that Sanford's actions were justifiable. The only black jury member casted the sole vote against Sanford's innocence. So, lots going on there. One is that after hearing that they had referred to they had like said that bitch is dead and asked where he lived uh, and all that sort of stuff and had abused uh, an arrested person. The district attorney's concern was that they'd used profanity, which right. is the fascinating. The real problem here. The, the real issue. Cops are cursing. <laughs> you can murder people, but you can't call them a bitch afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. offensive. Mm-hmm. That's going to make people angry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, also that obviously all of the white people in the jury voted that the cop was right to shoot that kid. And, uh, the only black jury member right. was the only vote against his innocence. Uh, I will state here that the story did not end happily for officer Sanford. Despite being described as a model officer prior to the shooting, Sanford received increasing complaints about his performance after the inquest. He was suspended from duty in 1975 for accepting a gift from a citizen and in 1977 for the use of illegal drugs while off duty. Later that year, he was put on permanent disability for PTSD. And this next bit is interesting. Not that I expect people to have sympathy for this guy, but that it makes the point that the Portland Police Union is actually bad for officers in some ways, too. Mm -hmm. The PPB's culture of resistance, supported by the PPA, negated Sanford's professional and moral accountability. PPA President Stan Peters claimed Sanford would receive psychological help after Johnson's death, yet there is no evidence that he did. To so easily brush aside Johnson's death as justifiable emphasized not only the inadequate services Portland police officers received from the Bureau— but also the unspoken norm that black lives did not matter. This obviously and ultimately disrespected the sacredness of black lives throughout Portland and questioned the worth of black people. Kind of like it's bad for everyone for white supremacy to be enshrined by institutions. Arguably, but does Arguably. that stop it? <laughs> sure <laughs> no, does no, no. no, not <laughs> hey, at all. Hey, this is bad for everyone. Should we stop it in the next 50 years? No. No. Absolutely no. not. Let's keep having the same fight. <laughs> Why not? We don't have anything else to do in society. Yeah. Everything else is good. Yeah, everything else is smoothing, just chugging right along. Like that train the police used to shoot longshoremen from. <laughs> <laughs> So the rest of the early 70s continued the by now well-worn pattern of Portland police only suffering consequences when they offended the white majority with their actions. In 1975, the Bureau was rocked by a series of scandals in the Narcotics Division, most of which revolved around the fact that the entire Narcotics Division was addicted to illegal drugs. One PPB detective (laughs) testified that narcotics officers frequently did huge amounts of cocaine before going out on drug raids. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to be honest. I've seen them riding along in their riot vans and thought it would be fun to do a fuckload of blow and then like hang off the side of a Ford F-350 rolling around the streets. <laughs> that does seem rad. It's, it's just like how not subtle it is. That just like mm-hmm. makes my brain explode where it's like, yeah. let us do drugs before busting people for drugs. For we drugs. Good. Because that way we'll have more drugs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is we actually what We just all happened. of our drugs getting ready to use. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It's a perfect cycle. There is at least one clear case of the PPB murdering and then faking the suicide of a drug dealer in order to get his mm. heroin. Um, good. Good guys. Portland narcotics cops. Uh, and in fact, when that dead kid's mom pressed for an investigation into his death, she received a phone call from a white dude who was probably a Portland narcotics officer. He told her to back off on the investigation unless she wanted more family members dead. Oh, 
<laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> good policing. Good fine. It's fine police work. So the uh, detective Dupay, who was the, uh, I guess, the best Portland cop we're going to talk about in this. He's the one who reported that Portland narcotics officers were doing a shitload of blow before going out on drug raids. Uh, He investigated the murder of this drug dealer, and he submitted a report to the police chief with his findings, which were pretty damning to the Portland Police Bureau. Years later, when he attempted to get a copy of the report, I think to give to a reporter, but I'm not sure, a clerk told him that it had been shredded as soon as he filed it. (laughs) Like, almost immediately. (laughs) Uh, it's good stuff. <laughs> good stuff. If you're wondering, why didn't anyone do anything about these drug-addled, out-of-control cops? The answer is PPA President Stan Peters, one of the worst people to ever live in the city of Portland. He was a potent negotiator, though, and when the city negotiators angered him during a contract dispute, like, this is the story that everyone tells about Stan Peters. He was negotiating with the city for more money, and when they wouldn't play ball with him, he drew his gun and slammed it on the table and told them, these are my ground rules. Oh, my God. I... Sorry, I just sat here. They can see I just sat here with my mouth open for like 30 straight seconds. I'm like, I, uh, they just they just keep outdoing themselves. It's like know, a it's parody amazing. of themselves. And they keep doing shit that is, again, literal criminal stuff. Right. <laughs> like the cops Which are I just think, a criminal. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's a thing. No, it's just a thing where like, I feel like we get desensitized to it. Like mm-hmm. I get desensitized to yeah. anything that they do because I'm just like, yeah, of course they're doing that. And then, you know, you know, with the protest that we were at, like someone outside would be like, wait, they're, you know, snatching people up in arm rack vans. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. is that not normal? And they're like, that's yeah. not, they're not supposed to do that. And I'm like, oh, interesting. So like when they do that, I'm just like, oh yeah, I guess technically you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like something they would do. There's a, there's an, a local cop that we all know, Brett Taylor, who yes. is most famous famous in the city of Portland for kind of randomly stabbing car tires during riots mm. um, yeah. for no real purpose that I can see most of the time. I originally knew him as cop who won't stop pointing his gun at people's heads. That's what he I was calling him. It was a that. long moniker, but he just, when yeah. everyone else would like point it at the ground, he would just be still have it at your head. But yeah, then he switched to just like really just hating car tires. Yeah, he he's, uh, he uh, he's really fucking loves to stab car tires. Does he have you a see the joy in his Schwab? body language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, uh, among other things, we had like a recent like, city like in testimony or whatever on on police violence and somebody Mm -hmm. came on who he had shot in the groin and brett had to testify that he had never knowingly targeted the groin area (laughs) and at another point he was talking about having addressed protesters and like he was stopped by the moderator and they said by addressed you mean you threw grenades at them (laughs) 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 uh fucking love the portland police (laughs) <laughs> they are cool then, they're cool now. Start a conversation with a grenade. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love dialogue. So, <laughs> Stan, uh, the guy who negotiates with a handgun, wound mm-hmm. up having an influence that extended far, far beyond the bounds of the Rose City, from pickets, pistols, and politics. Shortly after Peters became the union president, he introduced a concept that was relatively new to police officers, political involvement. Peters' predecessor, David Callison, had dabbled lightly, even inviting controversy by offering a PPA endorsement in a few local races. But Peters' scope was broader than that. He wanted the union to be a political force to be reckoned with. He was tired of the city and state of officials writing roughshod over police with seemingly little interest in its rank-and-file concerns or causes. He wanted the police to be listened to. Better yet, he wanted politicians to quake in their boots if the police were not happy. Uh-huh. Yep. And so he pulled his handgun out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, he did do that. Um, yeah. He's also the start in a lot of ways of police nationwide getting directly involved in political races and having police unions directly endorse candidates and taking partisan stances. We can also yeah. thank the PPA for a lot of that. Yeah, no, I, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And that showed up mm-hmm. last month, this month. Gosh, it, yeah. every month is 100 year's long. Yeah, um, I mean, it showed up earlier yeah. this month. Yeah, every month of this year has lasted longer than all of the history we're covering in this podcast. Yeah. This is true. But you know what doesn't take long, Tuck? Goods and services. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't take long to develop an appreciation for the fine products and services that support this podcast. Can't wait. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. 
wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com behind. That's mintmobile.com behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to 15 bucks a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. High Five Casino Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. You're probably careful with your personal information, but what about the other places that have it? Like the doctor's office that mixed up your files. They have your social security number. The power company that mistakenly cut your service has your payment info and last three addresses. And the hotel that lost your reservation has your passport info. Your information is in endless places out of your control. Any one of them could accidentally expose you to hackers and identity theft through lax security, breaches, or simple mistakes. But LifeLock monitors millions of data points every second and alerts you to a wide range of threats. If your identity is stolen, a U.S.-based restoration specialist will fix it, guaranteed, or your money back. With plans covering up to $3 million for stolen funds and expenses. Mistakes happen. Don't let not having protection be one of them. Save up to 40% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 40%. Terms apply. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. We are back. Okay, so... The PPA had made history by becoming the first successful police union, and it made history again here by setting a precedent that police unions would involve themselves directly in local and eventually national races. Stan was clear that his motivation for doing this was to make local elected leaders afraid of him. This, he knew, was the only way that the Bureau could protect itself from the dangers of democracy. <laughs> Portland Police... <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Portland police were going to keep shooting people and engaging in rampant corruption. That was going to continue to piss Portlanders off. If they wanted to avoid real consequences for this behavior, the PPA would have to insert themselves into politics. So they started donating to city council candidates, paying to run ads attacking leaders who threatened to force any kind of accountability on them. Other police unions around the country paid attention and, true to form, followed suit. 
1979, one of those coke-addled narcotics cops we've been talking about, Officer David Crowther, was shot dead during a drug raid on a motorcycle gang. Since he was, I mean, I don't know specifically that he was a cokehead, but other Portland cops say the narcotics cops were all cokeheads. So one one assumes. <laughs> I am sorry if I unfairly <laughs> slandered him as a cokehead. Sorry Just because he was in a unit of cokeheads. Um, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being a cokehead as long as you aren't also carrying out drug raids, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No shame on cocaine. Uh, Weren't you wistfully tweeting about cocaine like yesterday? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was mostly a joke. It's been a long time and happened in countries where it's legal. Let's just say that. Um, Yeah. So, uh, yeah, since he was, you know, possibly a cokehead cop who may very well have helped murder people, because, again, his unit definitely murdered at least one person and staged it as a suicide. I'm not going to say it was a tremendous tragedy that David Crowther got shot busting another gang. Um, But the hilariously pro-PPA book Pistols, Pickets, and Politics notes, the violent death of a fellow officer was a terrible blow to the members of the Portland Police Bureau and devastating to the drug unit, but it was not the end of the nightmare. And what that book calls a nightmare was the fact that Internal Affairs had opened an investigation into the murders, drug dealing, and drug abuse by numerous members of the Narcotics Division. (laughs) What a nightmare! Being held accountable for our actions, that's for other people. Yeah. I, too, have nightmares that I will get in trouble for doing a shitload of drugs and murdering people. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, one of the most damning complaints against the drug unit was that they had planted drugs on suspects in order to charge innocent people with felony crimes they had not committed. (laughs) But that's not the nightmare. The nightmare is not getting caught. The nightmare is them getting caught, yes. Now, I should note that police planting fake drugs or drugs that they stole from other people and then planting them on people who didn't have those drugs, this happens constantly all around the country. Uh, Google the Dallas fake drug scandal if you want another example of huge numbers of officers being involved in the planting of fake drugs on people. Anyway, law and order is important. Um, So... The internal affairs investigation was completed in the summer of 1980, and it led to the resignations of two officers who'd been assigned to the narcotics unit. One of those officers was later arrested on charges of illegally obtaining narcotics from a drug dealer with the intent to deal. He was convicted, and the PPA did not sue to get this cop back his job. So that's, we found a line. (laughs) Mm The investigation revealed at least 59 cases where people had been convicted due to falsified evidence from Portland cops and 35 more cases that were in the process of being like, like argued out based on the same bogus evidence. And all of these cases, nearly 100 were overturned. Even Officer Crowther's killer was released from prison after it was proven that the cops who testified at his trial had lied on the stand. Okay, that's very funny, actually. (laughs) That's extremely funny, because he's absolutely a murderer, and they just couldn't stop themselves from lying. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So make sure you know he's an extra murderer. Yeah. Uh, I won't say you're shooting yourself in the foot, but maybe you're shooting your friend in the back. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So by the time 1981 rolled around, the Portland police were not doing particularly well in the uh, winning hearts and minds department, and things got worse for them on March 12th. The Burger Barn was at the time one of very few black-owned businesses in Portland. It was, of course, in Albina. The cops claimed that the Burger Barn was a major gathering place for criminal activity. Gangsters and drug dealers and pimps would all meet there all the time, and I have no idea if this was true. Considering the fact that the PPB's whole drug unit was a bunch of cokehead murderers who planted fake drugs on people— I'm going to take what they say with a grain of salt here. (laughs) Like, the PPA book, like, just sort of goes like, well, criminals were gathering here, and cops were just so angry that that, that all these people they couldn't catch were always gathering at this restaurant. And that's why they did what they did. But it's like... They also lied all the time, so. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so as the story goes, two Portland police officers got fed up with all of the bad men hanging out at this restaurant, and they decided to get revenge with what the PPA's biographer describes as a prank. This prank involved gathering up four dead possums and dumping them at the doorway of the burger barn. Now, if you aren't aware, the word possum has been a derogatory slur for black people since the early 1800s. It has the same etymology as the use of, like, uh, the term raccoon as in the same sense. Like, they, they come from the same origin point. This was not a prank. By dumping dead possums at the door of a black-owned business, these cops were making what amounted to a death threat, right? Like, that's what that means. Um, 
Not, I wouldn't call it a prank. The officers took no steps to be stealthy about what they were doing. And according to the Powell family who owned the restaurant, this was just the latest in a long line of harassing actions from the Portland police. They believed this harassment was designed to scare away their customers and destroy the business. You should probably also keep in mind that while the Portland police claimed this restaurant was a famous haunt of drug dealers and pimps, uh, for literal decades, prostitution and drug dealing in Albino had been carried out under the approval and sometimes the direction of the Portland police. Um, yeah. So an investigation was launched, and the officers responsible admitted what they'd done immediately. They were not publicly identified because there was a clause in the PPA contract that said officers who were disciplined should not be disciplined publicly. In other words, the PPA contract guaranteed that officers who harmed people would not be publicly named or punished, which some might suggest means they probably wouldn't be punished at all. This is now the standard nationwide. So, That's yeah. frustrating and consistent. It's, it's not great. Uh, it just now, reminds it, me of now when, uh, just for people who aren't aware, maybe everyone already is, uh, mm-hmm. they actually, yeah, covered all the n- name badges and numbers on the Portland police. And so there is actually no way to hold them accountable. And the only mm-hmm. thing you can do is, like, submit a description to PPB. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll we'll look into it privately. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. like you're not allowed to, like, name the person who shot you in the head because... Uh, that would be going too far, according to the PPA, apparently. That, that would be. But whenever they arrest people, they will tweet out uh, the names. All of their of, identifying of information. Yeah, yeah. All those people are getting doxxed. Oh, it's sorry. fair. Fair is what it is. <laughs> fair. It's cool, good, just, cool law and good order. Just, yeah. Now, uh, in this case, there was enough public outrage that the PPA couldn't just sweep things under the rugs and do an internal investigation. The officers responsible, Craig Ward and Jim Galloway, voluntarily appeared at a press conference before black community leaders. They identified themselves and apologized. And I'm going to quote here from Pickett's Pistols in Politics. Ward and Galloway claimed they had acted out of frustration, not racial hatred, when they made their late night deposit of the possums at the restaurant's door. But the black community, already incensed over incidents of alleged discrimination by police, labeled the possum dumping as more evidence of racism and deliberate targeting of blacks by police. Just a month and a half earlier, Black United Front co-chairman Ron Herndon and neighborhood activist Vesia Loving had called on the United Nations to investigate human rights violations in the Oregon because of the high percentage of blacks that had, they said had been killed by police over the previous 10 years. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that people had called on the UN to investigate Oregon police for racism. Um, Probably not the last time. But would, yeah, nope. that's wild. Yeah, yeah, we could use another UN investigation, although that would probably just increase the conspiracy theories that Antifa is part of a UN scheme to take over the United States. Is that actually an already a conspiracy oh, yeah, theory? absolutely. I yeah. missed that one with the UN. There's too mm-hmm. many. Antifa's doing too much at once. It's hard <laughs> to keep track. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't going to throw out criticisms here, but I do think they're they're going a little bit broad. Um, <laughs> they're trying to provide respirators. <laughs> they're making soup for my family, and they're taking yeah. over the UN. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the Black United Front is one of the advocacy groups that I don't think they'd formed over the outrage in Ricky Johnson's death, but they had really like come together in a big way after that, because a number of groups that formed after Johnson's death had been merged into the United Front. They gave a press conference themselves where they pointed out that the possum incident was part of a pattern of police harassment of black Portlanders. The PPA's paid biographer writes, begrudgingly, the people of Portland seemed to agree. For the most part, public sympathy lay with the Powell family and the black community, not with the police. Gasp. I'm so proud of everybody. (laughs) They figured it out. Yeah. 200 protesters picketed City Hall, and lo and behold, this forced the police chief and commissioner to fire officers Ward and Galloway. Great! Surely that's the end of the story. (laughs) (laughs) And no one ever did anything racist again. No, uh, no. They immediately did something racist because Stan Peters was still the head of the Portland Police Association, and Mm -hmm. he was pissed as hell. Quote, It appeared that no one was willing to stand up for Ward and Galloway. No one but Stan Peters. As president of the Portland Police Association, it was his duty to protect the rights of members. Once the executive board determined that Ward and Galloway had not committed a crime and that they had a legitimate grievance due to their summary dismissal from their jobs, the union, led by Peters, rose up to defend them. This is good. It's so cool that they just like, I want to make sure that you have your legal right to be racist. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, the PPA was saying that as long as Portland cops didn't break the law, it was okay for them to racially harass citizens. Right. <laughs> like, that's the argument Peters is making. Yeah. Peters was a rampaging racist and sexist, by the way. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. I could yeah. tell from your intro. Is he? Yeah, is it's, he just this, that, it's like that. Oh, good. Is he this this dude with the terrible mustache, Robert? Yes. Yeah. You know he has a mustache by the name Stan Peters and the fact that he was a cop. Like, he has to have had a mustache. The universe would have shattered into a thousand pieces if he had been a clean-shaven man. I was like, this is a terrible face. I'm guessing this is the right guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, He's he's he looks exactly – if you just picture an old-timey cop in your head, it's Stan Peters. Like, 70s cop. Yeah. 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 I just yeah. – it just reminds me so much of, like – Mm-hmm. Not Sam Peters and his face. I don't know about that. But um, it just reminds me so much about, like, people who somehow conflate the Second Amendment with, like, the right to say whatever the fuck you want and still keep your job. It's like that yeah. thing. It's like, oh, because yeah. you legally can threaten people's lives by leaving dead possums outside of their job, you also should be able to keep your job and still do that because those yeah. two things are the same. Also, uh, I would guess that if uh, protesters made an explicit death threat towards officers— in a similar way to the officers had threatened to kill uh, members of the Pow family, they would probably be arrested. Hmm. I don't know. Not- some people <laughs> made some death threats against me, and all I get to do is say, hope they don't kill me. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, you're not a cop, Tuck. No, I know. <laughs> made a mistake. Just kidding. <laughs> Should have been a cop, be then a your cop. life would matter. <laughs> Uh, wow, I just opened the photo and yeah. it is truly everything I imagined and more. <laughs> yeah. He does you have hair. On the, I was kind of imagining him being bald. He does have some top mm-hmm. hair. Wow, this mustache. Yeah. I know. It is a it is a cop stash. It is a powerful cop stash. He's like leaning against a desk yeah. just like It fucking rules. Don't mean to stereotype, but he is cop ugly. <laughs> yeah, no, he looks he looks like a cop. If you saw him on the street and you were a director and you were trying to cast a cop, you'd be like, yeah. hey, like, let me get your digits. <laughs> this does look more like the still from a Hollywood film about an mm-hmm. old-timey cop than it does an actual old-timey cop. Yeah, yeah, he looks like the guy who, like, yells at Dirty Harry for shooting too right. many people. But in exactly. reality, Stan Peters never yelled at anyone for shooting too many people. <laughs> he was like, you didn't shoot enough people this month. <laughs> Why are there so many alive people in this town? <laughs> uh, yeah, so... um. Yeah, the Stan Peters makes the union rise up to defend these officers who were fired for making racist threats. And this was actually pretty groundbreaking. Um, thanks to the PPA, it was common for unions around the country to weigh in on disciplinary matters when cops did bad stuff. Um, and officers could appeal punishments for bad behaviors. But once a cop was fired, they tended to stay fired. Stan Peters set out to change that. First, he demanded the case go to binding arbitration, which the contract allowed him to do. Then he organized a petition drive to fire the police commissioner. He sent ballots to the PPA members to get a vote of no confidence in both the chief and the police commissioner. And last but not least, he announced a protest march to compete with the Black United Front's march. This one would consist of off-duty cops, their family members, and local supporters. So this is back the blue versus Black Lives Matter thing? Okay, cool. What year is this? This is 1981. Okay. Yep. Cool. The PPA's march gathered a staggering 850 people, waving signs that said, Reinstate the blue too, justice, not politics, and may the force be with you, Craig and Jim. Star Wars, (laughs) pretty new at the time. Um, (laughs) Fucking nerds. Uh, many police elements, including sharpshooters, protected the march, which is interesting because it was a private organization doing a march being protected oh, by yeah. public funds in a way that I'll guarantee you the Black United Front protesters weren't protected. Sure didn't. Not a thing that ever happened again, say repeatedly. Um, <laughs> so some brave counter-protesters did show up with pig's heads on spikes, which infuriated Stan Peters. Um, and kudos to those folks. Uh, mm-hmm. But on the whole, the march was a massive success for the PPA. All the pressure exercised by Peters eventually did its job. The arbitrator decided that termination of both officers had been too harsh a penalty. Both men were reinstated to their jobs. This would turn out to be quite possibly the most influential thing the Portland police ever did. From pickets, pistols, and politics. The city of Portland versus Ward and Galloway case is still the leading police discipline case in the United States. And in labor law circles, it is the arbitration decision referred to most often. Its legal nomenclature is simply city of Portland. 
So you know we started this by saying that 25% of all fired cops in some cities more like 70 get reinstated by union appeals? Yeah. The legal underpinning of that is City of Portland. That is the name of the case that is most often referred to when police firings are appealed. <sighs> what a <laughs> cool city mm-hmm. that I live in. What so a great proud legacy to be here. <laughs> we have a lot of roses too. <laughs> you know what, Robert, it's okay because as we were discussing right mm-hmm. before this, there is a current lawsuit that I'm not allowed to talk about called Woodstock versus City of Portland. And we're just going to slide that one in. And that's going to mm-hmm. be the one everyone references now. Mm-hmm. Make the me. city. Yeah. <laughs> fingers crossed. Tuck, fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> so I found an interesting interview with labor historian Norman Diamond on the website Street Roots. He was actually on the Portland Labor Board uh, when all this was going on. So he's very familiar with how the PPA works, because, again, like the PPA was part of the Labor Board at this point. And he pointed out that initially the PPA's goal was, quote, if any of our members commits an act subject to discipline, we want them to have union representation. That's reasonable. Their claim was cops have to have the same rights as anybody else in society. And I do agree with that. But he says with successive contracts, they extended those rights beyond anything the rest of us have. Now, in the event of a shooting, you can't question a police officer until two days have passed. Their superiors can't. The district attorney's office can't. And that's part of the labor contract. So they have a chance to meet with other officers involved in the shooting to get their stories straight and go over everything with their lawyers. And then after two days, they can bring back what becomes the official version. I'm sorry, what the fuck? Yeah, so that's they can something collude? that the Portland... They're like, hey, yeah, it's yeah. really just like you. your union means that our union says you get to have this specified collusion yep. time. Mm-hmm. And now that's very common around the entire country because of the Portland police. I can't even like fully process that because it's just mm-hmm. so obviously yeah. corrupt. I right. Just, I mean, that's what we're saying this whole time, right? It's like every single thing in Drew, it's like you're not being yeah. subtle about it. You're just like, yeah. oh, here's like me being just like literally doing criminal things, yeah. but yeah. I'm the cops. And so I just get to do it. Yeah. You know, when the... When the this year's like big protest started up after George Floyd's murder, I was kind of there was there was an element of me that was like, you know, Portland's not a big city and our police department is not a big police department. And it's not a nationally. It wasn't at least now it's more famous. It was not a nationally famous police department. And it seemed strange to me that this city would become the nexus of so much resistance to the police And it makes more sense now because the Portland police are the center nationwide of a lot of our problems with police violence and brutality. Like, I wish it worked in reverse where like, oh, Portland started all of it. And so if something happened to Portland police, like every other police station, like like, by something happened, I mean, like contractually, like legally, like something got taken away. Then it's like, oh, that actually just ripples out to everywhere. But I have a feeling it doesn't work in reverse. No, it would not. It's going to require an agonizing and probably decades-long process of, yeah, good times. In 1985, Portland police responded to a shoplifting incident at a 7-Eleven. They noticed a fight happening in the store's parking lot, and the PPA's biographer describes it tellingly as, between two white men and a tall black man. It's interesting to me that they didn't feel the need to describe any of the physical attributes of the white men. Um... Nope. Got to know he's tall. So the cops decided that this tall black man must be responsible for whatever was happening, and they put him in a sleeper hold, which killed him. It turned out that the victim, Lloyd Stevenson, was a former Marine and a father of five, as well as a security guard at Fred Meyer. More outrage swept through the city. The city government acted quickly, banning the police from using chokeholds. Seems kind of familiar. I think we've heard this story before. Of course, the police complained. Portland police were trained to use force in gradually escalating levels from one to six. Level one is the presence of a cop. Level two is voice commands. Level three is physical restraint. Level four is the carotid artery uh, hold that killed Lloyd. And level five is the use of a nightstick or mace. And six is, of course, deadly force. But of course, really, so was four because the carotid hold killed people. Yeah. Now, the Portland police complained that taking their chokehold away would escalate things dangerously, leaving them with less non-lethal options to respond to crime with. Because most cops didn't like to carry nightsticks because they were heavy and thought carrying mace was a hassle, so just all they would have is a gun. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, this will give us, basically, this will say that our, this will make our only option be shooting people. Um, right. Now, yeah. 
If you don't let us kill them this way, we'll have to kill them this other way because we can't carry mace around. Because it's we can't too like, heavy. It's too heavy, mace. <laughs> <laughs> Two Portland cops, Monty and Wickersham, were particularly angry at being banned from choking people. And the PPA biography notes that they were in the process of being trained to give chokeholds at the time. So it kind of leaves you with the impression that like they were so excited to choke people and then they got their power. Like, oh, what? I don't get to choke anybody now. I'm new to being a cop. Come on. <laughs> Do you see their names are Monty and Wickershims? Monty and Wickersham. Yeah, they sound British as hell. <laughs> they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Couple of bobbies in the uh, in the old PPA. <laughs> they like they yeah. traveled here because they're like, I hear you get to choke people more in the Portland <laughs> Police Bureau. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, when I was a little conservative, well, I guess more conservative than I am now, I remember a video circulating around that was like a bunch of British cops like like a circle of them all around one man with a machete and they had like mm-hmm. chairs i think and were like like basically like all in a huge circle trying to like calm this like stop this guy from swinging a knife and eventually de-escalated him and nobody died and it was like portrayed as like look how silly it is because english cops don't have guns this is what it takes to deal with a man with a machete and it's like well but they didn't kill anybody. Right, it <laughs> Like, worked. everyone walked away alive. Isn't this a good story? <laughs> yeah. We're going to arm everyone with chairs now. They're mm-hmm. going to be heavy, but no mm-hmm. one's going to die. <laughs> yeah. So... I'm going to quote here from the PPA's biography. Uh, Monty and Wickersham reacted to the situation with the typical black humor of police officers. They had T-shirts printed with the slogan, Don't choke them, smoke them. No. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, reaction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's just the typical black humor of police officers. <laughs> Making a t-shirt about an innocent man you choke to death. Good times. Uh. Uh. I mean, as someone ma- who's wearing a novelty police violence t-shirt right now, I guess mm-hmm. I can't talk, but it's a little different. Uh, someone in the city of Portland has found a Don't Choke em, Smoke em t-shirt at, like, a fucking vintage store, like, and didn't know what it was for. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the biography goes on to state, the message they wished to convey was clear. If the carotid hold was no longer available to police, why not just shoot? <laughs> why not? Why not? What else are we going to do? Law enforcement? Bad to shoot people? (laughs) Yeah. They started selling the t-shirts in the Justice Center's break room on the exact same day of Lloyd Stevenson's funeral. Um, Classy. Classy. They were fired, and the case went into arbitration. The union argued that the officer's apparent insensitivity had been unintentional because the officers hadn't known that Stevenson's funeral was taking place the same day. The firings were overturned, and the officers reinstated. Uh, you know, I am loving this city of Portland mm-hmm. citing more and more every time a <laughs> yeah. cop gets their job back. Yeah, it's great. Ugh. You know what's better than people mocking a murder victim and then getting back pay? Fuck, Robert. I would say honestly most things, but po- yeah. possibly products and services. Uh, yeah, very certainly products and services. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, 
Head over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Electricity has always been synonymous with power. And in the BMW i4 M50, power is more refined than ever. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Listen carefully and you'll make out the sound of over 500 horses stampeding at a whisper. Experience the rush of pure performance as BMW M-Engineered handling takes you through every twist and turn. And elevate each moment of your drive with a suite of cutting-edge technology, including a BMW intelligent personal assistant that gets smarter with every interaction. I've started guidance. And the most advanced iDrive operating system yet for the most powerful vehicle of its kind. Introducing the BMW i4 M50. Silence has never said so much. BMW, the ultimate electric driving machine. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are back. Okay. So there have been a lot of horrible crimes committed by the Portland police and defended by the PPA. We've gone through a number of them. Um, We only have so much time in our lives and in this episode. So in the sake of brevity, I'm going to outline just one more. And this time the victim is not a black man. It's a 12 year old boy. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. In 1992, a home invader broke into the house where Nathan Thomas, the aforementioned 12-year-old child, and his parents lived. The police arrived while the invader was in the house, and the man grabbed Nathan as a hostage and held a knife to his throat. The home invader was 20 years old, drunk, and reportedly suicidal. Now, this is obviously a nightmare situation. And, like, right, my criticisms of the police aside, there's not going to be a perfect way to handle this. This this, There's a good chance that he would have died no matter what had happened. This is a bad situation. That said, the tactic the cops chose to deal with this hostage situation was, shall I say, less than delicate. Instead of doing any of the kind of things you might expect police to do during a a hostage situation that threatens the life of a 12-year-old, five different Portland officers opened fire from outside of the house with their handguns, pumping dozens of rounds into the house. The hostage taker was shot 14 times. Nathan was also shot, and he died in the hospital. Just five guys start shooting into the building. What's even the point at that point? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. ostensibly, you're there to help the You're not. But, yeah. like, ostensibly, they're there to help the kid. Yep. But they're not. So why they're are they not. there? Just and it's also like, <sighs> I will say, it can be justified to use a firearm in that situation. But you don't use a pistol. Right. You don't you don't try from outside of a house to I I shoot a lot of handguns. Right. They're very inaccurate compared Mm -hmm. to a rifle. Like they are only good at short distances and they are not for precision work. That's not what a handgun's for. Um, You would have a sniper come in and try to shoot the guy threatening a 12 year old. with That's a reasonable time to use a sniper. They just had five guys start shooting handguns into the building. Um, It's so fucked up. The president of the PPA at the time was a guy named Morse, and he showed up on the scene with a PPA lawyer as soon as he heard that his cops had gunned down a small child. Now, I want to read you this next paragraph from Pickett's Pistols and Politics because it has to be one of the most sociopathic things I have ever read in my entire life. (laughs) As the father of three young sons, Morse's heart went out to the family of Nathan Thomas. The boy's accidental death was devastating, but Morse, a Marine Corps veteran and a longtime police officer, was a man who had been thoroughly trained to maintain his focus and perform his duty, no matter how much he heard inside. As he dialed the telephone number and contacted one sleepy lawyer after another, his focus was on the five police officers who needed his help. (sighs) Cool stuff. Good guys. So I just even just calling it like an accidental death. And it's like, I'm not convinced it was an accident. I don't think you no. can just have five people shooting handguns into a house and be like yeah. that. Oh, oops. Oops. If, someone died. If five people shoot handguns into a house filled with people, what you're saying, because I love nonverbal communication and the nonverbal communication that you're giving off when you and four other men fire handguns into a house is I don't really care who I hit inside that house. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. 
Uh, so, uh, obviously, um, none of these guys were fired uh, or no. seriously disciplined for Why shooting wildly. Why would Now, don't worry, though, Tuck. The PPA's biographer wants us all to know that the police cared about what had happened, and they wanted to make it right. <laughs> uh-huh. Quote, the association's concern for youngsters was demonstrated in a gesture of grief and sympathy after the death of Nathan Thomas. A few weeks after the boy's death, the union contributed $250 to the American Cancer Society. Nathan had received treatment for Hodgkin's disease and was in remission at the time of his death, and $250 to the Nathan Thomas Soccer Scholarship Fund. Nathan was the member of a soccer team. So that's good. Yeah. I always say, if you just kill a 12-year-old kid for no reason, mm-hmm. just donate $250 to a soccer team, <laughs> and it's all fine. That's fine. Yeah. Now, they, I will say, they, uh, the family of Nathan also reached out to the police later because they were working to raise money to build a soccer field in Nathan's memory at Laurelhurst Park, uh, which mm-hmm. is near where he lived. Um, and the PPA did contribute $5,000 to the soccer field. Oh. So that's more money. Yeah, they love to sponsor soccer. Yeah, they're big soccer fans. Do you think we can get them to defund PPB if we tell them that we just need to raise more money for Mm -hmm. soccer? A lot of soccer fields. That might do the trick, Tuck. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I would want to defund PPB. I'm an uh, objective journalist with no skin in this game. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, as a journalist, opinions are uh, obviously forbidden. Now... (laughs) There are a number of important things I didn't cover in this series, like how PPA President Stan Peters hated the idea of woman cops and non-white cops and deliberately made the union unwelcoming to them. Cool. I felt like focusing on the travails of police officers, even like, like obviously, I. it's weird because like I don't think we should have cops. If we're going to have them, yeah, everyone should have the equal opportunity to be a cop, I guess. But I didn't want to focus on that in this episode, as opposed to all of the horrible things that the police did. Um, Yeah, but Stan Peters, super racist, and there was a whole fight within the union to make it less racist. That's a thing that happened. Um, So, you know, in the sake of fairness, I wanted to note that. Um, Yeah, I do want to close, though, by talking some more about the PPB's infamous Red Squad. In 1974, the mayor of Portland assured the city's liberal population that the Red Squad had been disbanded. This was a lie, and they later learned that year that it had just been renamed the Intelligence Division and was actively keeping tabs on suspicious characters at the Oregon ACLU. Um, (laughs) Gotta keep an eye on them ACLU folks. (laughs) In November 1986, local press published rumors that the Red Squad had been secretly reestablished as a new entity under the name Criminal Intelligence Division, presumably as part of a renewed Red Scare of the Reagan years. The police denied this, admitting that the Criminal Intelligence Division existed, but claiming that it does not monitor peaceful or public activities and does not target groups or individuals. But that's Mm -hmm. true, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to quote next from a write-up by Michael Monk. In 1992, Officer Seward, officially detailed to spy on radicals and subversives, attended and submitted a confidential report on a meeting by a coalition of peace, labor, and environmental groups to discuss a civilian police review board. One of the victims of that surveillance sued Portland for a violation of his civil rights four years later and won a $2,000 award in court. Although the court decision was not reported by the Oregonian, it led to public hearings on the Red Squad in 1996 by the Metropolitan Commission on Human Rights. Although denied press coverage even by the Willamette Week, the commission grilled Red Squad Commander Lieutenant Larry Findling and Sergeant Norman Sharp. They admitted they used paid agents, volunteer informers, and other techniques to monitor dissenters and agreed that even the reasonable suspicion of something as trivial as trespass triggers their response. The MCHR proposed a series of controls on the Red Squad to Mayor Katz. Not only did the mayor reject the proposals, she dismantled the MCHR. Yeah, Portland's got a long tradition of good mayors. Nothing but quality in Portland mayors. I was trying to make a joke earlier about Bearcats being good, and I'm so glad it didn't work out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Nope. Turns out leaders are bad. So, the Red Squad spent the end of the 1990s violating the civil rights of dissidents. In October of 1999, it sent an undercover agent to spy on protesters opposing Bill Clinton's air war on Iraq. In 2000, on May Day, the Red Squad's black van videotaped the faces of demonstrators who hadn't actually broken any laws, which is, again, a crime. Right. It's a 
that's criming. The Red Squad's behavior was egregious enough that they pissed off Circuit Court Judge Michael Marcus, who ordered the Oregon police to stop tracking citizens who aren't breaking the law. Two years later, information surfaced that they were still doing that. It is currently against Oregon law for them to surveil lawful demonstrators, but we can only assume the Red Squad is still doing what it always did, whatever name it operates under now. Anyway, that's the story of the Portland Police and the Portland Police Association. Yay! Good stuff. I will rest easy knowing that I'm definitely not being surveilled by the Red Squad because it doesn't exist anymore. And Mm -hmm. uh, they stopped it. They're just chill and cool now. Mm -hmm. Things are good. Things Thanks, Robert. Good. I appreciate knowing this context that not only are things bad now, but they always have ha- always have been bad, and there was mm-hmm. plenty of time to fix it, and we just didn't. Yeah, but you know, this inspires me to kick the can right down the road to the next generation <laughs> of people. <laughs> uh, Can't even go to the burger barn. That story made me just want to go to the burger barn and support yep. the burger barn. It doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. That's the real tragedy. 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 I don't know. My brain stopped when you said Willamette Week. I was like, what? And I missed the Yeah, Yeah, I think that was a, uh, uh, either they changed their name or that was the name they used to operate under. I don't know enough about the history. No, it is Willamette Week, but it. Oh, it is. I thought it was weekly. No, it's Willamette Week, but it was like Willamette Week versus Willamette Week. It's like a very non-Portland pronunciation. And I'm like, Robert, where are you from? You're I'm not from I here. From Get out Texas. of here. Yeah, no. no I, I'm and it, like the Portland police. I'm not a Portland. <laughs> I don't live here. <laughs> yeah. That is. I mean, that, I do like, live here. Yeah. Came no, yeah, but that came up in my head when we were talking about the police the whole time. Is like, at what point did they stop living in Portland? You know. Yeah, and I, I don't have good information on that. Um, yeah, I figured. But yeah, it is, people should know that about 82% of Portland police live outside the city, many of them <laughs> in another state, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's cool stuff. It's cool and good. Yeah, cool and good. So, Tuck, you got anything to plug? Yep. Uh, still, much like mm-hmm. in the last episode, I still make a podcast about gender. The new season is dropping right around when this episode drops. Mm-hmm. And we have programs to uh, provide money for housing, medication, food, really basic things for trans people, particularly black, indigenous, trans people and trans people of color. So if anyone wants to contribute to any of that, they can go to patreon.com slash gender. That's patreon.com slash gender. Awesome. Patreon.com slash gender. And also we have if you're if you're listening to this and we're like, boy, Portland is, and its problem with cops is more interesting than I thought it was. We have a podcast about that called Uprising, and it's about everything that happened in Portland this summer. Um, please check that out. Uh, again, Uprising, it's a podcast that's more things about Portland that will frustrate you. <laughs> <laughs> There's never enough. <laughs> yeah, never enough. A lot of great audio of things exploding, though. Um, oh, God. So. If you were yeah. like, my headphones haven't triggered me yet. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I was like, oh, that sounds cool to listen to. No, I have PTSD. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Trigger warning, the podcast. <laughs> uh, podcast. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. 
you wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer.